Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 66. It, I, say, yeah, I talk fast, but I'm trying to say it slower to make it last longer because I love Isaiah. I was, uh, I was anxious, not scared, but anxious to, to dig into Isaiah three years ago because it's such a grand book. You don't want to get in the way of it. You want to unfold it as best you can by God's grace as a preacher. And I thank you for your prayers through it because it's clear that's how preachers get through anything is the people of God praying for them. It's, it's an odd thing that God would use uh, broken vessels to bring the word. And that can only happen if we all humbly ask God to help me help you as you dig in. It's not just me doing it either. You go and you read it as, as well and you uh, plumb the depths of it on your own. Hopefully you're, you've been doing that over the course of these couple years together, almost three years together working through Isaiah. But we're almost done. We only have two scheduled sermons uh, left today and next week. Uh, the following week is Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Then Pastor Aaron is scheduled for the 8th of April. So I'm planning to start the next series on the next week, the 15th. And this is how we'll start that series today. Because the passage is actually forecasting when the church would be birthed from Israel in the Old Testament. Now, it's forecasting the beginning of that and the consummation of that all in one big prophetic picture that's kind of blurred together. That's how a lot of, a lot of prophecy is. But what is being predicted here as the southern kingdom goes into exile, as they lose their outward identity, as they start to feel like God has not kept his promise to Abraham, what we find out in the promise is, no, he has, and he will birth from this nation something even greater, which will be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant when all the tribes and tongues come to know the name of the suffering servant, the Messiah, who is Jesus, and that will be the birth that we see in the book of Acts of the church when the Spirit comes upon those first believers and God starts sending his word forth, and it's been going forth since. So it's going to be a continuation. It'll be a, we'll jump over 700 years, but when we get to the book of Acts, we're going to see the things forecasted in Isaiah having been realized in Christ and now being actualized as the gospel spreads and the church grows and spreads. And yet we look forward to its final consummation that is partially depicted before us. Remember that the people, the people of God, are really divided. A small portion are what might be called word tremblers. Remember those who trembled at his word, those who believed God, feared God, trusted in God's salvation? True believers, you might say. The majority were just believers in name only, in practice only. They were doing outward things without inward reality. They were just as well taking the pagan gods from the other nations and practices and superstitions, as well as Yahweh's. And so Isaiah speaks to the nation Making clear, though, there is a distinction between those who tremble at the word and those who do not, those who are false professors, those who are really, it's a hard word, but they're apostates. Um, They should believe, but they don't. They've rejected the true faith in Yahweh. So it could be a depressing time for sure, especially for those who are faithful and they're enduring the same oppressions as the whole nation because of the unfaithfulness of the whole. So we come to the passage before us. Verse 6 is, where we left off. So let's start at verse 7. Starting at verse 7, I will read now the passage. God is speaking to those who are faithful in the midst of the people of Israel, a minority at this point, a remnant, you might say, those who still trembled at his word. 
And he's going to promise them something into the future that will give them strength for the day in which they live. Hear now God's word. And remember, this is God-breathed. And so we can count on it completely, and it's our authority for life and godliness. Verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, And by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we do desire to be genuine. We don't want to be fakes. We know we can't fake you out. We don't want to go through motions outwardly. We don't want to be ritualists. Lord, we do not desire religion. We desire redemption from the just penalty for our sins that we confess. And we desire a restored relationship with you through Christ. We desire to be able to call you Father, and we know that we can through Jesus. As we consider this passage and what you forecasted in the days of Isaiah and Judah, Help us to rejoice in your sovereign plan that has unfolded before our eyes and still moves toward final consummation. Lord God, as we study your ancient promises and consider your fulfillment, please build courage. Please build perseverance in each one here today that we would stay fast believing in you no matter what might confront us personally or corporately. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Certainly, we have learned together in our study of the Scripture in general, but certainly in Isaiah, that one of the ways God sustains his people, and I mean personally through the various trials and challenges you are having as an individual believer or as families, um, or the way he sustains us as a church or the church, Christians, um, in a world that opposes us, and even 
because of our own struggles that we bring to bear because of our sinfulness. One of the ways he helps us bear up under these things is to give us pictures of what he's doing, what he will do, and what he will ultimately do. In this case, we come many years after much of what Isaiah has been fulfilled, namely the servant Messiah, Jesus, has come since this book has been written. We have the the record of Christ and how he fulfills so much of the longings of the people of Israel looking forward to salvation. We look back upon it having been accomplished in Christ. The vivid details of Isaiah have been played out in history before us. Thousands of eyes witnessed it. Hundreds of eyes spoke of it. Inspired pens wrote about it. We can trust in it. We know it. So when we hear these elements of promise that have not yet happened completely in, say, Isaiah, we know they will happen. Um, Sometimes the purpose of a given passage is to help us lift our eyes up from the troubles that we are dealing with, personally or corporately, to see the glory that awaits. There's suffering that happens because of sin, but there's glory that we experience even now in Christ, and we will see fully realized. And this final picture in the last chapter of Isaiah is meant to give believers perseverance because of the sureness of what God will do for us, and against our enemies. And if it should be in the assembly of those who profess faith that there be some who are still enemies, some that, like we learned in the passage from the last time we were in Isaiah, some who say they're brethren, but they oppose because we're believing in the word, may they hear of this judgment, and while there's still time, humanly speaking, turn and come to Christ. That's the point of judgment being spoken to make believers appreciate and worship God for the salvation we have, that we're free from God's wrath because of the Messiah. It's also for those who have never heard that message to hear it and believe, or those who have heard it and have thus far been stiff-necked or hard-hearted towards it, that God would give them hearts of flesh so they would receive it. This is why this, this message must go forth regularly. It applies to all of us. And here we come to kind of the climactic point of the book of Isaiah, And we see Isaiah painting a picture of ultimately the future glory for God's people. It's still unfolding, but it has an ultimate end as well. Now, before we go into the passage itself, and I want you to have the passage there in front of you on the insert, because we're going to walk through those verses. I want you to recognize um, a reality that has always been true for God's people, and we see it even in the time of Judah. Um, There is always this reality since the fall of man and sin entered that there's suffering that goes along with being human. And even though we sometimes will say, us us Americans don't, we don't suffer as much. Listen, there are aspects of the effects of sin that we all suffer from. We're We're still in mourning as a congregation over the loss of a brother, a father in the faith. That's an effect of sin and death that has come. Now, we don't have the ultimate sting because we have hope and we know. But we here are still left with that void. And you can... You all have voids like that in your life. All of us do. You won't get through this life without them. That's, an imp- that's part of suffering because of sin. There's sickness. There's relational brokenness. There's misunderstanding. There's strife. There's difficulty. All these things are part of what make up this existence. It's difficult. In Christ, we gain some of that glory. We sense some of it, but we also still struggle with suffering. That's true for all believers. We have to recognize that. In fact, if you look at the different two aspects of suffering that the church has dealt with. There's external and there's internal, just briefly. Externally, ever since there has been the name of Yahweh proclaimed in the Old Testament with Judah, and then after when Jesus becomes 
the fulfillment of all those things forecasted, then people just turned and hated Jesus and those united to him. And for the first 300 years of the church's existence, the church was constantly persecuted, constantly oppressed. I mean, it had moments where it could breathe and it could grow, but it had other moments where it was pressed down. And it wasn't until Constantine and just after 300 allows for the legality of Christianity that you see some, some time to pause. Now, it's not necessarily the healthiest time in the church's life. It just didn't get oppressed constantly. But really, after the Reformation period, it started up again. And in the last 100 to 200 years, the church, those who call themselves Christians, have seen more external pressure and suffering than any other era. In fact, any of the other eras combined don't make up for what it's been like for those who name the name of Christ the world over today. God has allowed for the gospel to go all over the globe, which is awesome. But it has also brought persecution to those places too. There's this suffering and there's this glory that goes with being this side of eternal glory. It's the reality. Externally, the church will always face it. I try to regularly look at the top 10 most uh, persecuted countries because it changes. Now, North Korea has been at the top of the list for a while. Um, But mostly what has happened in the last um, 50 years, last 20 years even more so, um, countries that have Islamic influence have had the most oppression against the church. Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Yemen. Nigeria is one that's growing. I had this right in my uh, right uh, in my face, really, when I was at a class about three weeks ago at Midwestern Baptist, and there was a man from Nigeria, a pastor who was here training to go back to Nigeria. While we were in class, he gets a call from some family member about his village being attacked by Boko Haram, and ten people have been killed and multiple people have been injured. And he's sitting there, one of us. We're all a bunch of American pastors with pretty easy existences as it relates to this. And this man is asking us to pray for his village back in Nigeria that had just lost 10 people. And it wasn't unusual. And if you look at what's happened, it's gone up 62% attacks in Nigeria from Boko Haram, other Islamic extremist groups attacking. Point is, the church will always suffer from these things, this side of glory. But at the same time, God will give it growth. He keeps growing it. Even where it seems to get squashed out, it seems to keep expanding. Um, It's sort of like when you break a glass, I've heard it said. Uh, The glass is only one little spot, but you know how it is. If you break a glass, that glass gets everywhere. If you try to break the church, it gets everywhere. I mean, that's God's design, but it includes suffering that then comes with glory. Now, that's the external reality. Let's be honest. A lot of what we deal with as Christians, it's internal. We just, against ourselves, we all contribute things that cause strife and that becomes difficult for us to, uh, to get along on a regular basis. It also has to do with just the purity of the message that we are called to proclaim in the struggle that the church has had to be pure about this. If you think about uh, how this has occurred when God, gives God's, when God gives his word to Abraham, still despite God's presence there with his word, Abraham and Lot and their herdsmen start to argue with each other. Uh, the people of God, they have the word of God, yet they're arguing with each other. Um, Moses, clearly given God's special hand, he parts the Red Sea among many other things, and yet it doesn't take very long. And we read this passage, and it's one of 13 almost identical occurrences in the time of Moses. Then all the congregation raised a loud voice, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Um, constant strife within 
the people of God. You see, even though they have the Word of God, they're still struggling over following the Word of God or what it looks like to live it out. David constantly prayed about strife within Israel. He had the Philistines to deal with for sure, but he also had his brethren. In Psalm 56, 6, they stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. He's not talking about the Philistines there. Then we get to the New Testament, we see Paul talking to Corinth, a very divided church, inner struggles and strife they're battling. Paul says, for I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, he says. He's upset by their strife. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. So the church itself struggles externally and internally. That is our existence, the suffering that we have this side of glory. Arthur Stone, you may not know the name, but you know the hymn. The hymn is The Church's One Foundation. We sing it regularly enough here. He wrote it in 1866, and in that period of time, it's interesting, there started to become doubt about the Word of God. Uh, The theory of evolution through Darwin's uh, origin of species was starting to become uh, uh, proliferated, the message it was, and people were starting to doubt whether the Bible was right or not, and there was inner strife happening in the church in those mid-1800s into the early 1900s. And Arthur Stone uh, was concerned that people were not adhering, or they weren't trembling before the Word of God, and they were trembling before the Word of man, and there was this struggle, so he wrote this hymn with that in mind. Listen to his opening line. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Now, listen to the next lines, and you'll see the internal struggle he's talking about. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, Yet saints their watch are keeping. Their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping will be the morn of song. So Stone captures even the sentiment of the passage before us where they're struggling under duress. That's external and internal. But when they look up to see the promises of God, they look forward to what will come. Listen to another verse from Stone. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her, and false sons in her pale, against the foe or traitor she shall ever prevail. It's a great song of victory in the midst of strife and struggling and suffering. The passage that uh, we left off on in Isaiah 66, verse 5, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake. And it goes on to talk about how they'll persecute you from within. Now, with that, with that suffering, God promises the glory to come, both in the now and in the future. The now for us, Judah didn't get to experience much of it. They saw some of it when Cyrus overtook Babylon, Cyrus of Persia, and then let the Jews go back to build their temple. But Judaism never saw the glory of the days of Solomon. It was now in place until Christ would come, and then birth what we call the church. The church is just a description of people's God's people of all time, but by this we mean now the fullness of the Abrahamic covenant is realized as the nations hear the gospel and the nations come in to worship God through Christ. The church, in that sense, is birthed after Christ ascends into heaven, sends his spirit, and sends out his people 
for the Great Commission and its practice and its endeavor. That's what we get to see a bit of the, we get to see a bit of the glory now, but we look forward to what it will look like in the future. With that, let's look at this metaphor that may have struck you right away. You might have thought right out of the gate, verse 7, what is this talking about, the mother with child, and, and how does this mean? What does this mean? Well, the mother, based on verse 8, is Zion. It has to do with the people of God. It's a synonymous term with Jerusalem sometimes. Sometimes the Scripture will use Israel. Sometimes it will say uh, Judah, Israel, Zion. These are all synonymous words for the people of God. Zion, who is under such duress now, would eventually give birth to something much greater, which would be the church, which would be this epic of fulfillment of Abraham's promises. That's what is being forecasted. So the people would get a sense of perseverance knowing that their suffering and what God was doing in Israel or Judah would become something much greater, which we are enjoying now, which we are participating in now. Verse 7, before she was in labor, she gave birth. So it's going to be something God's just going to birth. It's going to be before you can know it. There's, there's a reason for the immediate suffering they were going, undergoing, but Judah would eventually give birth to something greater. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Judah has a purpose. She is to bear Christ ultimately. That's the greatest gift ethnic Israel gave to the world is Jesus. And then Jesus, the son who is born, that is forecasted in Isaiah and other places, is also used to depict all those united to him, sons. God has many sons through the son. So by bringing forth Christ, God will then bring his people from all the tribes and tongues and fulfill the promise to Abraham to make Israel a blessing to the nations. That's what's being forecasted here before us. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. For before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. So look up, Israel, he's saying. There's great purpose for you. Something great's going to come from you. I love what Kyle and Dalich say. These are commentators on the Old Testament. The church of the future is already like the fruit of the body ripe for birth. He's speaking of this text. And about to separate itself from the womb of Zion which has been barren until now. The God by whom everything has been already so far prepared will suddenly cause Zion to become a mother, a boy, a whole people after Jehovah's heart, will suddenly lie in her lap in this newborn Israel, not the corrupt mass, will build a temple for Jehovah. And of course, in the New Testament, the temple is not made with stones. It's made with living stones who are regenerated because of Christ, he being the chief cornerstone, and we are the temple of God. This is the temple of God, not the building, the people. And that's the forecast that helps the people of Judah endure their issues and their struggles and their strifes and their discipline, knowing that God will give birth through them to something much greater, fulfillment. And that fulfillment will be for the worship of his glory. It'll be for his praise when he exacts the final fulfillment of his promises to Abraham through us. Verse 8, rhetorical questions now. Who has heard of such a thing? I mean, a painless, a painless labor and birth? Who has heard of such a thing? This is pre-fall language. After sin enters, there's no such thing as painlessness in childbearing. But this is a description of something God's going to do supernaturally. It's something he will by his sovereign hand do. 
Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the land be born in one day? How how is this possible that that a people would materialize like this? It doesn't happen like that. No, it doesn't normally, but if God's doing it. Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Now, commentators have quibbled over this. Does does the prophet here have one single historic event in mind? I don't think if you read the prophets on the whole, that's almost never the case. Usually the prophets seem to be given a picture of, of kind of a fused future. In fact, one commentator says it that way. The concluding stages of God's work are fused in the dim prophetic light. You follow what he's saying? He sees a consummation that is glorious and grand but it's fused together. It's kind of dim so we can't see it all. He's just giving you the big picture, the big idea of it. It's not meant necessarily to cut apart into when exactly it will happen. I mean, one of the reasons why you know that's the case is because over history, solid Bible-believing Christians have come up with different views of this all across the map, and it usually comes out as the most balanced view is, oh, this is meant to be a big picture. There's some blur to our vision, but be sure of its main point, that God will bring through the servant people to himself. He will fulfill the promise to make Israel a blessing to the nations. The promise he made to Abraham will be fulfilled through this Messiah. People will experience this renewed, restored relationship the world over. This will be glorious. God will grow this. There may be suffering, but he'll keep growing it, and eventually he'll come again. It will end all the suffering, and there will be complete glory. I mean, that much is very clear with what Scripture over and over lays out in different metaphors. And we have it again here before us, and it should encourage us. One commentator says, everything from the return from the exile, meaning after Cyrus, which is about 80 years after this text was written, everything from that point to the final establishment of Christ's kingdom is in view. So everything in Revelation history from the time that God restores Israel to their land for a time until Jesus comes again is this whole epoch in time, this time of blessing or glory that God will bring. Another commentator says, it describes the release from captivity, which suddenly became a reality with Cyrus's conquest of Babylon. It also describes the rise of the Jewish kingdom in the period between the Old and New Testament. It describes the birth of the church at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it describes the outburst at the Reformation. Calvin thought the 30 years around his time saw this fulfillment. That It's like that fast, God birthed a nation, birthed a movement, birthed his people. Multiple times you will see these things in history where God amazingly intercedes and brings the church where it wasn't before. But those are all just foretastes of the ultimate transformation that will happen at final judgment and consummation. I love the abrupt picture that you find in Acts chapter 2 as a bit of a preview to what we'll study. In Acts chapter 2, all these folks who are generally Jews in the first audience, it hadn't gone to the Gentiles yet, Peter's preaching to them, preaches the gospel to them, tells them how they're responsible for killing the Messiah, and listen to what the text says. The abrupt nature of it. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? We've heard this message, we believe. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children. And all who are far off, he's already using Abrahamic language to describe the benefits of what Christ has done, language they would have known explicitly and been clear about. 
you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, the expansion is now, you original audience, you're hearing this, but this message will go, and anybody who responds to it will be received. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Talk about an immediate nation, an immediate birthing. Um, This prediction of Isaiah that this Abrahamic fulfillment with the gospel would happen is realized already in the early early chapters of the book of Acts. Verse 8. Back to our text, the middle part. For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? In other words, you may not feel like I'm doing this, Judah, in 700 B.C. in the midst of your discipline, but don't forget the, all, the whole of redemption history and don't, don't be fooled. I will bring it to pass. I won't get it this far and stop, even though you may feel like that's the case. Verse 9, shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? God is in process, he tells Judah. It may seem that his promises are done, but they're not. God will fulfill his promises to Abraham, through Abraham, and for his glory. God will supernaturally finish the work that he began. Now look at verse 10 and verse 11. These are like pivot verses in the passage. Verse 10 is spoken to the original audience right there in their spot of difficulty. Verse 11 is a bit of a a challenge for them by what is said to look up and realize what God will provide. So the present in verse 10, verse 11 is the future, which we've realized to some degree already. Verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. And they're thinking, why? Jerusalem's in terrible shape. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. So if you care about her, you care about what she represents. Jerusalem represents the place where God dwells among his people. It represents his promises. It represents his watch care. It represents all that has to do with being called the people of God, and it's under complete wreck. And he's saying, if you care about Jerusalem and what it stands for, rejoice. Why? Because of what is coming in verse 11. That you may, future, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. Um, There's a promise that there will be this sustenance given to them spiritually to come. And this will be the picture that is gained when you look at Jerusalem. And this is the figurative Jerusalem to come. Safety, sustenance, satisfaction, all these things are pictured by a nursing mother with child. Nothing could be safer, nothing could be more content, nothing could be more happy, nothing could be more satisfied than that baby who's getting what that baby wants from the only one who can give it to him or her. It's a beautiful picture of what God's people will look like as they draw from the wells of Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of this. Verse 12, for thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. So there's going to be peace now to the people of God. Like a river, and this is exactly where it is well with my soul gets this line. I will extend peace to her like a river. It will be flowing, it will be abundant, it will sustain. And the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. Christ is depicted as the glory of the nations. The nations are invited to Christ. This is what will be pictured in this future iteration of God's people 
the church in all of its fullness in all of the nations, all of the tribes, and all of the tongues. And the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. These are people who don't have enough to eat. They wonder what, where it's coming from. They're in terrible alliances and allegiances. They're abused in those relationships and they're abusing. It's a terrible, restless, anxious, terrible, dissatisfying time. He's saying all of that will be gone. You'll have full satisfaction in me. The fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham ultimately realized in the church and ultimately to be fulfilled at consummation on the last day. I will make you a great nation. I will make you and make, I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you all the families of earth will be blessed. For behold, verse 12 again, says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced on her knees. And verse 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. It's not usual in poetic, prophetic language that you have the word used so often as it is here, comfort, in verse 13. In fact, back up to verse 12 for a moment. There's two words I want you to see, peace in verse 12, comfort in verse 13. Why is this important? Peace and comfort is what makes people tick. The reason why people will act irrationally at times is because they think it will secure one or the other. I want peace and I want comfort. Now the problem is outside of Christ, you don't really get either of them. So you're striving after things that you think you get and you give up things for them and you don't get it. But we want peace and we want comfort and we can't figure out why we want it. But we learn through Christ that the peace we need first is with God. And that's why we can't have any other peace and we can't have any other comfort. When we realize, by God's grace, that the peace we need first is an end to the war with God that we have, and that only comes through Christ, through the suffering servant, forecasted in Isaiah and fully depicted in Scripture. So when we have peace with God through Christ, now we can start to experience a peace or contentment about eternity, and we can start having peace with each other. It starts there. can't be had any other way. People will strive, but it can't be done otherwise. Then from that peace, true peace, comes comfort, a sense of satisfaction, of contentment, of ease with existence and purpose. Now look at the passage, and you'll see how these two words are used. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. Where else is peace been referred to in Isaiah many places, but the most vivid. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us what? Peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And now Isaiah says, through the people of God, I will extend peace to her like a river and comfort, in verse 13, three times, as one whom his mother comforts, and nobody can comfort another like a mother can. So I will comfort you, so shall I be comforted in Jerusalem. This is the only time God ever uses mother as a metaphor for himself, because it's meant to describe that only he can bring this thing called comfort. And everybody recognizes it most 
when they think of their mother. And so this is why he uses this metaphor for us to see. Verse 14, you shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. Um, We're getting to consummation here. This is going to be the fullness of what God brings ultimately. This beautiful relationship between God and his people, his servants, in the most beautiful sense of servanthood, united by the great servant. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Now he switches. As he's preaching this message and as we're hearing this message, he switches to some harsh reality about the division between humanity that we must recognize. Verse 15, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. Fire purges, fire shows that which is impure, fire is deadly, fire depicts holiness that cannot hide within it anything corrupted. And this is how God will visit. Verse 16, for by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. There there will be no way to escape this presence of God as he comes. In fact, I love the way Alec Moitier says it in his commentary. Every act of God is hallmarked with pure justice, whether he saves his people or whether he destroys his enemies. In both cases, pure justice. And we know it. Those who sanctify, verse 17, and purify themselves to go into the gardens. This is about those people who are practicing those rituals, those pagan practices they gain from the other nations. They're going to those gardens where they're offering sacrifices, not into the temple. Remember that. Those who sanctify and purify themselves go into the gardens, following one in the midst, a cult leader, some think, some individual, doing these abominable things, eating pig's flesh, and the abomination and mice, they shall come to an end altogether, says the Lord. There's a time coming when it all stops. God lets it go for so long, and there's a gracious opportunity for repentance. But then it ends. There's suffering for the church. There's glory to see salvation exacted. People come. But eventually, it ends. There's several ways we can respond to a passage like this. One, And probably the most important, for those who've been believers, to hear this message of the the benefits that are ours in Christ should compel us under any duress to stand for for Jesus. Um, What he has saved us from and to should be worth whatever comes our way, corporately or individually. Also, for those who hear the message and think, this is awfully harsh. God can't judge like that. I want you to think about this. I can't change your heart. I can't make you think different than this. Only God can. I do know this. When the word of God is truly proclaimed and we say what's true, what God really will do, save those who are in Christ, judge those who are in themselves. Save those who are aligned with the second Adam, punish those who are aligned with the first Adam. I mean, that's what the Bible says. So when we declare that, What God does by his spirit is he convinces people. People who have already been saved from it never get sick of hearing their salvation is secure in Jesus because they know they should get this stuff, this punishment, this judgment, this fire. We know it. No one's here saying, I didn't do anything to get out of it except for lay hold of Christ. But for the person who's still wondering, how can I be right with God? This is how you be right with God. 
you rest in Christ. You've got to get away from yourself. You've got to get away from any claim to righteousness. You've got to get away from the idea that God won't judge. God's not God if you don't judge. So you've got to go from this place of judgment that you're under that's sure to come, and you've got to place yourself, humanly speaking, only God's grace can make you do this. But if you're convicted now, if you're compelled, if something about this is tweaking you, even if you're a little mad at me for saying it, good. Because you either have to reject it, straight up say you're wrong, God won't judge like this. He's not righteous like you say, or he's just going to overlook it. You've got to say that, then you redefine God. Think about that for a bit. Or you've got to say, that's me. I've got to go to Christ. That's the beauty of just proclaiming the word for what it is, even when it seems hard. That's what we need. And that's what drives us to the only place we could ever end up, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word and its bluntness, for its truth. Lord, I I pray in a sense the words that Arthur Stone wrote in the rest of his hymn. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one, in mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, on high, may dwell with thee. Amen. Let's together turn in our hymnals to respond.